Warner Salmon was a Christian artist in the 20th century. Uh, maybe you've not heard of him, but he, he created these great commercial advertising pieces and, and worked as a, a freelance illustrator. Uh, but he's best known for one particular piece of art. Uh, Warner Salmon is the mastermind behind the very famous painting, uh, The Head of Christ. In fact, this painting is so important that in 1994, uh, the New York Times said that he would go down as the best known artist of the century. And perhaps you've seen this painting. I have. I grew up with it um, in our church uh, in South Alabama. This painting has been reproduced over half a billion times. So it is a very influential painting. But in the painting, Jesus seems so serene, uh, so unaffected by the intense emotions that are characteristic of a person with deep passion. And so it's a great painting, but because of the power of pictorial images of paintings, there have been many unduly, I think, and unwittingly um, influenced by his lack of emotion. Uh, this, this painting kind of defines Jesus as someone without emotion, without passion, passionless, emotionless. And this is the Jesus we often see in the paintings, I think, as a result of this particular portrait. But this isn't the Jesus we see in the Gospels. It's not the Jesus we see in the Gospels at all. In the Gospels, Jesus, like Yahweh in the Old Testament, God the Lord in the Old Testament rejoices in the good. And He grieves over the evil. And His evaluations are always just and right and true. He's passionate. Essentially, Jesus is passionate and His passion demonstrates the whole range of emotions that every human being has. Except without sin. His passions are always holy and righteous passions. When Jesus rejoiced like He did when the 72 came back from their first mission trip in Luke 10, He rejoiced with great joy. When Jesus grieved, as He did over the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, He grieved with great grief. And when he was angered, he was angry with a righteous indignation. And in just a few days from now, two to three days from this account, he's going to be torment, tormented on the cross as God forsakes the Son of God. And so fittingly, now with Jesus' entrance, entrance into Jerusalem... We've begun what is called Passion Week. Passion Week, and the reason it's called that is because of the passion of Jesus. The word passion comes from the Latin word pati, which means suffering. Alright, so this is why it's called Passion Week. But the word is also used to refer to intense emotion, intense conviction, and affection. And so Passion Week was a week which involved the sufferings of Jesus, 
but also Jesus' passion for certain things. Jesus had passion for people. In particular, in our case, in this text, uh, his passion for the lost in Jerusalem. Jesus had passion for true and white right worship of God. And we see both of these in this particular passage. Indeed, Jesus was a man of real passion. Not this kind of weepy, wimpy, sentimentalist kind of passion you see on Lifetime movies. Not that I've ever watched those movies. Um, or this kind of moody, volatile kind of passion that you often see. It was a perfect and holy passion. He wept over the things that made God weep. Okay? He rejoiced over the things that makes God happy. And he was angered by the things that make God enraged. And here's the good news. If we are in Christ, if you have been united to Christ by faith, that kind of passion is being formed in you. Holy passion. The kind of passion that glorifies and magnifies the name of God. And in our present text, we get a window into Jesus' passion, which ironically kicks off Passion Week. And the first thing I want us to see about his passion is his passion for the lost. Look in verse 41. At this point, he's made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Some have praised him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then others, like the Pharisees, the, the spiritual leaders, have been consternated by what they have seen in this entry. And it says, when he drew near... And saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. Of course, the reason they would have been hidden from their eyes is when you reject truth, your heart is hardened, okay? Your heart is hardened when you reject truth. You never remain the same. When you hear the gospel of the kingdom, when you are exposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, you either respond in faith or unbelief. When you respond in faith, you are melted. Your heart is enlarged. But when you respond in unbelief, your heart is hardened. It's a very dangerous place to be. Now, notice he is weeping in this passage. He wept over Jerusalem. If you know your Bible, you know this isn't the first time that Jesus has wept. I'm sure he wept many times, but there, there's an earlier account that's actually recorded where he wept over the death of Lazarus in John chapter 11. And here he weeps over death as well. You see, there's three kinds of death in Scripture, and they're all related. There's physical death. That's what Lazarus had experienced. Lazarus was a believer, but he had experienced physical death. Something each one of us will experience unless Christ returns before our physical death. But then there is spiritual death. Do you know that you're born spiritually dead? You're not born a Christian. 
You're born spiritually dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Following the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Ephesians chapter 2. We're alienated and enemies in our minds by wicked works. So there is spiritual death. And related to spiritual death, if we do not respond to God's provision for our sin, is eternal death. So there's three kinds of death in Scripture. Jesus weeps over the tomb because that tomb represents a world... That was not the way God created it to be. And here, Jesus weeps over death as well. He weeps over spiritual death. As evidenced by Israel's rejection. Their failure to see and embrace Messiah. Henry Nouwen writes that Jesus went to Jerusalem to announce the good news to the people of that city. And Jesus knew that He was going to put a choice before them. Will you be my disciple? Or will you be my executioner? That's the only two choices. Will you be my disciple? Or will you be my executioner? There's no middle ground. Jesus went to Jerusalem to put people in a situation where they had to say yes or no. And Jesus is weeping here because He knows that the majority will choose to be His executioner. The executioner of the Prince of Life. And in the same way, when we are encountered by Christ, through preaching, through teaching, through evangelism, through some form of discipleship, we, like the people of that day, will either crucify Him or crown Him. Now what does it mean to crown Jesus? That's a metaphor. That speaks to bowing to His kingship. Bowing to His lordship. Okay? That's what it means to be... That's the normal Christian life. That's not come some kind of uh, special forces uh, Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. It's bowing to the kingship and the lordship of Christ. Saying, Jesus, my life is yours. My resources are yours. My time is yours. My talent is yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. You'll either crucify Him or you will crown Him. It's not this kind of fire insurance policy that we see. I see it often in the deep south. I grew up with that. Jesus is my fire insurance policy. I'm going to live my life on my terms, but I know in the end... Jesus is going to bail me out when I stand before the judge of the earth. Jesus is not your fire insurance policy. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is the King. And how can you see Him in that way when you see His passion for people like us? Now notice this language of the things that make for peace. Isn't that beautiful language? Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. What are the things that make for peace? Repentance and faith. Those are the things that make for peace. Turning from your idols, turning from your sin, turning from self, 
turning from the world and turning to someone, Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. Why? Why is it He? Why is Jesus the, the person who makes for peace? Because we lack peace. Now, when we talk about lacking peace, there's two aspects to this. There's an objective peace that we don't feel. All right? It's the peace that is lacking between sinful people and a holy God. We're alienated from God, you know, and this alienation is two-sided. God is alienated from sinners because of His wrath on sin. God is good, which means He must judge sin. We're alienated from God because we don't love God. We're enemies to God, okay? And so there's this vertical peace that is lacking. Vertical shalom that is lacking. We are separated from God. We lack the things for peace. But as a result of that, we lack peace on the horizontal level. We lack peace with others. It's hard for us to even find peace in our own families, isn't it? We lack peace in our hearts, okay? We lack peace uh, in the relational realm. Um, The reason we lack peace is because we have built our lives upon something other than God. As I shared a few weeks ago, the reason there's shalom in the solar system is because the, the planets all agree on the center. The sun is the center. And all the planets agree on the center. If each planet decided they were going to have uh, a different center than the sun, you would have chaos in the universe. The reason we lack peace is because each one of us are centered on idols. And God is centered on Himself. And that's why we lack peace. We center on power, our status, our acclaim. And one of the great Western idols that we center upon is comfort. We love us some comfort. Okay? That's why we get drunk on television and video games. And as a result, we lack peace. And these people were centered on other things as well. As evidenced by the fact that they wanted a king that they could control. They didn't want a king that required repentance and faith. They wanted a king who would do their bidding. Who would do their agenda. And in this particular case, it was to get the Romans off their back. So that they could live their lives unencumbered. And hence Jesus' devastating pronouncement in verses 43 and 44. Now before we get into this, we read it this morning with with, uh, Scott... He's going to pronounce a judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. And what he's going to do, he's going to pronounce, he's going to describe this judgment in five ways. And what's remarkable about this is all five ways are alluded to in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to go back and um, look at all of those different passages. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. But he's going to... Uh, describe this coming judgment in five ways, and each way is picking up a judgment that is predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament, in particular the judgment that came upon Jerusalem in 586 when the temple was destroyed. Okay? Now note the first thing he says. He says, The days will come upon you 
When? First. And this is from Isaiah chapter 29 verse 3. Your enemies will set up a barricade around you. Isaiah 29 verse 3. There's coming a day when your enemies are going to set up a barricade. Secondly, and this is from 2 Kings 6 verse 14. They will surround you. Thirdly, and this is from Jeremiah 52 verse 5 and, and Ezekiel 4 verse 2. They will hem you in on every side. Fourthly, this is Psalm 137 verse 9. They will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. Boy, Jesus bled Bible, didn't he? And fifthly, Micah chapter 3 verse 12. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And so Jesus is predicting Jerusalem is going to be a, <clears throat> the object of this siege, which is clearly the attack of Rome in 70 A.D. by Titus. Historians say that the stones were torn down, the, the temple was destroyed, and literally, Josephus tells us, the great Jewish historian, that the blood of women and children were flowing in the streets. It would have been utter chaos. Caesar wanted it to be apparently seem impossible to believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Why? Well, Rome had their reason. Rome had their reason for uh, this judgment that came on Jerusalem. But the real reason, and God uses kings and kingdoms for His purposes. He's sovereign. The real reason was divine judgment. And why was He judging these people? Because they did not respond to the time of their visitation. Isn't that beautiful language? What is the time of their visitation? We're still in the time of His visitation. When God comes to us in the flesh, Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, Son of David, they did not respond to God incarnate, Emmanuel, God's provision for their sin. They did not respond, and hence, this historical judgment. But this historical judgment, don't lose sight of this, is just a type. It points to a, a more horrendous and greater judgment that awaits every sinner who does not respond to the visitation of the living God. And hence, Jesus' pronouncement here. How tragic it is to be so close to Jesus and never trust Him as Savior. Proximity to Him does not mean you are saved by Him. And that needs to be heralded in every church in America. Proximity to Jesus does not mean you are saved by Him. There was no one more uh, close to Jesus in this physical way than these people. Do you recognize that He's the one who makes for peace? Do you recognize that? 
Romans 5 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your greatest need in 2014 is not a, a salary increase or better health. Your greatest need in 2014 is to have peace with God. And the only way to have peace with God is to trust in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who took the wrath of God, satisfying God's righteous requirements on sin. Your greatest need is objective peace. It's a vertical peace. And out of that will flow horizontal peace and subjective peace. It's the kind of peace the Apostle Paul speaks of in Philippians 4. And he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. It's the kind of peace that Paul speaks of in Colossians 3, when he says, Let the peace of Christ rule, umpire your hearts. That's the greatest need we have in 2014. And Jesus is the source and prince of this peace. And another important implication from this text is that if we have the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of God par excellence, we're going to have an increasing burden and passion and heart for the lost. Here's the question. When was the last time? When was the last time you grieved over the lost? When was the last time you wept over the lost as Jesus weeps over the lost here in this passage? Now, I don't say that and ask you that question to be legalistic. I'm not trying to beat you over the head with moralism here. But the fact is that the life of Christ is being formed in you. Which is what Paul describes sanctification to be in Galatians chapter 4. Christ being formed in us. If the life of Christ is being formed in you, it should evidence itself in part by an increasing burden and passion for the lost. J.C. Ryle says, We know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern about the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. That's true, isn't it? Indifference saves us a lot of trouble. When you don't have to love people who are unlovely to you, that saves you a lot of trouble. In fact, you don't need the Holy Spirit. It saves you a lot of trouble. To care nothing whether our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world but very unlike Christ. And Jesus had a burden for the lost here in Jerusalem because He knows what their eternal destiny will be apart from their salvation. And it's an eternal destiny and it's an eternal conscious destiny. It's not this um, soul sleep or a, you know where we're basically annihilated. It, there are certain religions out there that teach annihilationism so that when, when you die, that's all there is. No, the Bible clearly teaches that when we die, our souls will live on. We have souls that will never die. 10,000 upon 10,000s of years from now, your soul will be as conscious as it is today. Jesus understood that, and that's why he grieved over the lost. And wisdom dictates that we grieve over what Jesus grieves over. 
And if you don't, and let me just be vulnerable with you, I don't grieve over the lost as I should. How often do I pass over opportunities to share the gospel? Either because I fear man or because I do not want to be inconvenienced. And if you're that place, if, you're, if that's where you are in the first Sunday of 2014, what a good time to begin praying that God would open your eyes to His glory. That He would grow you in your, his, your love for His gospel. And your love for people. And their need for a Savior. And so Jesus had a passion for the lost. But not only did He have a passion for the lost, He also had passion for the pure and true worship of His Father. Notice in verses 41 to 42. Or rather, 45 and 46. And He entered the temple. And He began to drive out those who sold. Now, um, this is recorded by John early in His Gospel. Most commentators believe this is the second time he's done that. So this is a very important account. Jesus coming in to the temple and driving out those who were selling. When you came into the door of the temple, the first place you would come into is the court of the Gentiles. It's the only place where you and I could go. All right? Non-Jews. It's the only place we could go in the temple. And this place was mammoth, the court of the Gentiles. It was 500 yards long, 325 yards wide. It was 13 acres, all right? It was a very large place. The temple had four divisions, all right? You had the court of the Gentiles, and then you had the sanctuary. And the sanctuary was made up of the court of the women. That's where the women could go. And then you had the court of Israel, where only the circumcised Jewish men could go as the boys' club. And then you had the Holy of Holies, alright? So you had four divisions. But the most important thing about the temple was this. It's where God's covenantal evangelical presence, Shekinah presence, was revealed. We saw that in the tabernacle in Exodus 40, when God's glory is so thick, Moses can't even go into the Holy of Holies. We see it in the temple when Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings 8 and the, the cloud, the glory cloud of God fills the temple. It's where God's glory and God's covenantal presence was manifest in a very unique way. It's also where God's people communed with God and where atonement was made for their sin. It's where the animals were sacrificed so that they could approach a holy God. But it had become a place of religious corruption. It had become a money-making facility. All the business operations of the temple were, were set up in the court of the Gentiles. And we're going to see the problem with that in just a moment. And it was a thriving business. You have multitudes of, of these People buying and selling animals and exchanging currency, alright, at the money changer tables. They needed the currency that was used in Jerusalem. Just like if you go to a foreign country, you can't use American dollars. You have to have them exchanged for the currency of the culture. 
um, thousands upon thousands of, of pilgrims would flood Jerusalem every year at Passover season. And that's where, that's the time that we see here. And they would come buying and selling tens and thousands of animals to be sacrificed at Passover time. Josephus, as I said earlier, the Jewish historian, he, uh, recounts that um, during a particular Passover week, during that time, some 255,000 lambs would have been bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple. 255,000. You go in there and you just smell blood. Okay? This would have been utterly chaotic. And as Jesus came into that temple, He did not like what He saw. Now the question is, what made Him so mad? Now this is important to us. This is just days out from the cross. And so Jesus is making a very important point to us just days out from the cross. Clearly it had to do with buying and selling. Pilgrims were coming in by the thousands at Passover time and they needed these unblemished animals that they could purchase so that they could sacrifice. That wasn't the problem. The problem was these animals were being sold at high prices so that the powers to be could make their money off the pilgrims. And all of this was taking place under the oversight of the high priest. David Gooding is very insightful here. It's a just extended quote, but I think it will help us here. Here's what he said. Somebody, of course, had to sell the required sheeps and or sheep and birds to be to the would-be worshippers. But these sales should have been left to secular trade. In other words, it shouldn't have been happening in the temple. Unassociated with the sacred precincts and activities of the temple. For the temple authorities not only to allow this trading to go on in the temple courts, but to profit unduly from the sales themselves was not only inappropriate, it was scandalous. Instead of being priestly intermediaries to help men find worship and be blessed by God, they had become middlemen turning their priesthood into a commercial monopoly in order to make financial profit out of men's quest for God. And hence Jesus' anger. Now to see um, what the problem is here, consider uh, the two Old Testament quotations that Jesus gives from the Old Testament. Notice in verse 46. It says, He entered the temple saying to them, It is written... By the way, it is written, he often said that, and it's in the perfect tense, which means it's something that has been written in the past. It has ongoing, binding, authoritative effects. It is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Now, Mark's more comprehensive account in Mark chapter 11, says it shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Alright? And then he's quoting two passages. The first is from Isaiah 56 verse 7. 
In Isaiah 56 verse 7, it tells us that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all people. In the context, that's referring to the fact that this temple was to be not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And in fact, when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, here's, here's what Solomon says in 1 Kings eight forty one in his prayer of dedication. He says, When a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, he's praying to God, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house... Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you to, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. That was the purpose of the temple. Solomon is telling us that from the time the temple was built, God had intended that the temple would be a house of prayer for the nations. The Jews had lost sight of the kingdom of God and their role as a light to the nations. I was speaking to a, a Jewish man over Christmas and I asked him, I said, you guys, do, you, do the Jewish people in your community proselytize? Another way of saying, do you evangelize? And he said, no, we don't. And the scripture clearly tells us that Israel was formed to be a light to the nations. And so Jesus' anger arises not only because of what they're doing, exploiting the pilgrims, but because of what they're not doing. What are they not doing? They're not doing evangelism. They're not seeking to reach the nations in the court of the Gentiles. The very purpose of the court of the Gentiles was to evangelize the Gentiles. And they were making money off the pilgrims instead. And as I thought about that this week, I thought about the fact that the thing that arouses Jesus' anger here is that these people, instead of being kingdom-oriented, had become a self-serving entity. How easy it is for churches to fall into that trap. And as the new covenant temple, do you know that we, we are the new covenant temple? And we don't have a physical temple, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, alright? And if we are in Christ, we are the temple of God. Scripture makes that very clear. As the new covenant temple, we have the same commission. The great commission. That's our purpose. To reach the nations. To be a house of prayer for the nations. A house of evangelism for the nations. Now notice that in light of that, we should evaluate as a church, every church should do this, we should evaluate everything we do as a people in light of this commission. Whatever we're doing, does this line up with the mission? Does it line up with the great commission? Because if it's just busyness for busyness sake, it's easy to fall into the trap of being a self-serving entity. Now the second citation, when he says, you have made it a den of robbers, is from Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. It's the most famous sermon in 
the prophet Jeremiah. It's called the Temple Gate Sermon. Not only is it found in Jeremiah chapter 7, it's found in Jeremiah 26. That's how important that sermon is. The Temple Gate Sermon. In that sermon, Jeremiah is driving home, he is bringing the hammer down on religious ritualism. And what was happening was these people were trusting in the fact that the temple was standing. They were trusting in the fact that they were the people of the temple. And as a result, they had security. God would never bring judgment on them. They were the people of God's presence. They were the people of the temple. They were using the temple like a good luck charm, if you will. They were living unconcerned about God's glory during the week. And then they would come to temple, they would come to worship on the Sabbath and engage in this religious ritualism. Does that sound familiar? I mean, that's a warning to us, isn't it? It's a real warning to us. And I believe our version of the temple as Southern Baptists is a distorted understanding of eternal security. Oh, I've got eternal security. I can never... Listen, I believe the Bible clearly teaches eternal security. But I believe the Bible also teaches you have no security if you are now, have stepped out from underneath the umbrella For your hope, when Jesus is not your Lord through the week, and then coming to church and going through the motions on Sunday and believing that God is going to honor the currency of church attendance in the day of judgment puts you in the league with these people that He is judging here. And they were religiously busy, like most churches. Tasks and committees and people coming and going and transactions. But the busyness contained no gravity. There was no word-centeredness. There was no evangelism. There was no mission. There was no prayer. They were just checking their attendance off in the box. It contained no gravity. And there's many things that we can do that appear to be signs of life. We can be very busy and active without any real heart change and compassion for the spiritual needs of other people. And that puts us in league with these people that He's indicting. And Jesus' passion here for true worship, Jesus' passion for the law shows us where our passion ought to lie. That's why this text is important to us. So as we begin 2014, first Sunday, a good question to ask ourselves, what is your passion? Where is your passion? I didn't ask if you have passion. You're the image of God. You were created in the image of God, which means you have passion. All of you have passion about something that's ultimate. Each one of you has a God. It's either true and living God or it's an idol. Where is your passion? Okay? Is it centered on the same things that Jesus is centered upon? On mission? On the glory of God? True and right worship? Or is it centered on temporal things? The created 
order, if you will. Idols. And if your passion is not centered upon what Jesus is centered upon, here's how you develop that passion. You realize that the temple, the temple that we read about here, the very purpose of this temple is to point us to Jesus. Because in Jesus, God tabernacles among us. John chapter 1. Okay? In Jesus, we have access to God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. In Jesus, we commune with God. In Jesus, atonement is made for our sins. He suffered once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the Spirit. Indeed, He died for people like us. People whose passion is misdirected. And when you understand that, what will it do? It'll change your passions. That's what it'll do. It'll redirect your passions. And you'll begin to be passionate about the things Jesus is passionate for. You begin to grieve over the things that grieve God. You'll begin to rejoice in the things that cause God to rejoice in. You will begin to be enraged by the things that enrage God. And one of the means that God uses to foster this gospel 